have your Bibles, why don't we go together to the book of Philippians chapter 1. If you weren't here with us last week, we actually began a new study together in the book of Philippians. And if you do need a Bible, the guys have a few in the aisles. You're welcome to slip up your hand. They can get one to you. Philippians 1. And last week we began the study here in Philippians. We took an introductory look, went down as far as verse 7, which has us picking up in verse 8. And we're going to run down as far as verse 11 this morning as we look at Paul's mention of his prayer for the Philippians. And if you're turned there, would you stand together with me out of respect for the Word of God as we do and read our portion of Scripture this morning? Philippians 1, beginning in verse 8. Paul says, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, and that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. And Father, we ask humbly now for the help of your spirit and his ministry in our lives and among us as your church that, Lord, you would prepare us, give to us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church assembled here this morning. Lord, we ask that you'd make us attentive and receptive, that you do those things in us that need to take place, that we would be able to hear your voice speaking personally and powerfully to our hearts. So, Lord, would you bless your word this morning? We ask that you would speak to us and teach us and that your Holy Spirit would apply your word and every intent that you wrote it for to speak to our lives this morning. And we ask these things, believing you want to and will, in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, as a parent, I think that one of our desires that we all have for our children, and on top of that, probably from what I've experienced, one of the greatest pleasures that we get to observe in our children is the opportunity to see the maturing process. I found the older that my girls have gotten watching them, there's something very rewarding and fulfilling about watching the maturing process taking place in their lives and getting to witness who they're becoming in the Lord and seeing what God is doing in their lives and how they handle themselves. You know, just recently at the close of uh, the school year here, our, our daughter that was graduating eighth grade, they had an award ceremony at the uh, end of the school year and they give out all the different awards, probably 20, 25 different awards for education and then after that, multitudes of rewards for athletics and so forth. And then towards the very end, they gave one award, only one award, uh, for character. And it was the award for character among the entire eighth grade graduating class, and she got it. And you know what, as a father, there's something about that. You know, when people said something to me afterwards, oh, congratulations, your daughter got that award. I said, you know what, I'm glad character still counts. And I said, you know what, it's never been our goal or the great need in our life necessarily to have the smartest kid or to have the most athletic and talented kid, but if they have character, man, if they have character, boy, that is so rewarding. And you know, as a parent, there's something about being able to observe the evidences of the maturing process in our children's lives as we raise them and invest in them. And you know, the Apostle Paul was kind of like a spiritual parent. And I think he desired and enjoyed seeing the same things in those he invested in and cared for, that after people would come to Jesus initially, that then they would grow and that they would mature continually. Uh, look, the Bible is certainly very clear that God's will is that spiritual birth would take place in people's lives. Jesus said no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. That is, it's not about being religious to get yourself to heaven. It's not about trying to make yourself right with God. Jesus says, no, you must recognize you are a sinner that is destined by God's righteous judgment for hell because you've offended a holy God. But yet this God loves you. He sent his son to live the sinless life that you couldn't, to die on the cross, to pour out his blood, to make forgiveness and payment for our sins available. 
and he's risen again so that he can now forgive us and become the Lord of our lives. But there must come a moment where we decide consciously to come to Jesus Christ, embrace him as our Savior, accept him as the Lord to rule over our life. And at that moment, Jesus says that that's when spiritual birth happens, a conversion of the soul where spiritual life begins, just like physical life has a beginning point. And it is the will of God. The Bible is very clear that spiritual birth take place. But understand, it is just as much the will of God that we then continue and grow and move forward into spiritual maturity. In fact, interesting, we saw in Luke's gospel quite a ways back in chapter 8 there, where remember Jesus warned about the lives of people, he said, who could become choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life, he said, so that they bring no fruit to maturity. Showing that Jesus was warning, listen, important that we be careful of those things that can come into our lives that cause us to be choked in a sense whereby our spiritual growth is stunted and we then never bring no fruit to maturity it's not about being prepared for heaven alone it's also beginning to get prepared to one day exist in heaven by growing in Christ's likeness and continuing to experience a greater depth in our relationship with the Lord in Ephesians 4 Paul spoke to the believers there about the importance of not being immature but he said but growing up in the Christian life in the book of Hebrews, the writer there exhorts believers to go on into maturity. And in this next section we're looking at here in the book of Philippians together, I think the Spirit of God weaves within it, if you could, some marks and evidences of spiritual maturity and what spiritual maturity begins to look like in the life of a believer. And we'll take note of things like the fact that I think spiritual maturity is indicated when we begin to have the heart of Jesus towards people Paul talks about that how he had the affection of Christ for these believers he had the heart of Jesus not his own heart the heart of Jesus towards these people I think spiritual maturity as Paul's praying for it there begins to be indicated by things like when we have yes an increase in love that it would abound but there's also with our love a balanced understanding of what love really is a knowledge and discernment about what real love is and what real love isn't Paul will show us that spiritual maturity is things in relation to when we pursue what is best for our spiritual life, what's excellent. He'll show that spiritual maturity, as he prayed for it, is involved with having a conviction about being genuine, being sincere, and not giving offense and stumbling people around us. And we'll see some of these things as we move through this. Remember quickly as a background, Paul opened this letter to the church of Philippi, which he had planted 10 years prior, He's thus moved on and ministered and planted other churches. That was part of Paul's gift, it seems, to unplug and to pioneer new works. And now he's in prison. It's about 10 years after the church was planted. And as he began the letter, he expressed his appreciation for them. He expressed his appreciation for the spiritual camaraderie, the fellowship that they had together in the gospel that had lasted for all those years. And he also, from prison, expressed in verse 6, we saw, this confidence that he had that God was going to finish the good work that he had started in their lives. Remember, we saw Paul say, I am confident of this very thing. He who's begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Again, Paul was in a sense, assured and by faith he relinquished the stress, the concern that often we bring upon ourselves or we feel we have to be overly involved. And Paul says, you know, I can't do anything. I'm in prison here. But I'm confident that it's God's work and therefore if it's God's work, God finishes everything that he starts. And I'm confident that God's going to finish his work in you, Paul told them. I have a sense of assurance. He was encouraging them and in a sense relinquishing that. Here's what's interesting. Though Paul trusted and had confidence that God was going to responsibly continue by his faithfulness the work of God in their lives, we also see in these next verses that Paul indicates next how he, however, cooperated with what God was doing in their lives. And how did he do that? By letting the love that he had for these believers be the very thing that then compelled him to cooperate with God in that work. How? By intercessory prayer. 
You look with me again back in verse 8. Watch how this begins to unfold. Paul says in verse 8, again, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So again, as Paul's already done in the first few verses, he expresses his deep love and concern over these believers. Verse 7, Paul said, I think of you, I have you in my heart. Now this time in verse 8, Paul comes back again and he's trying to validate all the more strongly how he feels. He calls upon God as his witness. Now to call upon God as your witness is basically an endeavor to try and emphasize, if you get the picture, how sincere you really are. Uh, you know, in a court case, basically, when you call upon a witness, you bring a credible witness to do what? To validate, to verify that your case is true. So Paul says, look, God, who alone knows the depths of every heart, God himself, he says, is able to testify and verify of the fact of how strongly I care about you of how concerned I am over you there as believers in Philippi. And he said, I want you to know how I'm greatly longing for you with tender affection, the affection of Christ. Now, to me, this is interesting because think of Paul the Apostle. He is a vast, vast spiritual intellect. This guy's a theological giant. On top of that, when you look at Paul's life in the Bible, he seems to be represented as a, an individual, to me a little bit anyway, that seems to have sort of a little bit of a, a serious personality, a very strong personality, which I think was essential as a God-ordained leader to be able to keep the ship moving forward and to keep the ship on the right course at times. I think that was essential the way God wired Paul, especially in the leadership role that he had. However, don't let that fool you. Despite the perception you may have of Paul as kind of a strong leader and a little bit serious in his edge, don't ever misunderstand that this guy had a huge, soft, and caring heart for people. That he loved people tremendously, especially those who he ministered to especially those who he cared for and interacted with. You can just hear the pathos in his heart there in verse 8 where he's saying, I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, when we hear the word affection, we think of things like being tender and having loving feelings towards someone. When you look at the language there in the original, the Greek gives the indication of inner yearnings from the internal organs. And the picture there, the idea, it's describing how at times we can so deeply feel a certain way about someone or something where you actually begin to have the emotion be able to affect you physically. You know, remember we've said things before, maybe you've heard somebody say something like, oh, my heart just aches, right? My heart aches in concern over them or in concern over what's going on. Or we'll watch something or hear about something and say, man, that is totally heart-wrenching. Or as my wife on occasion will have an experience where yesterday my, my younger brother, he just had his first child, three-week-old newborn, and she just looks at a little newborn baby. Or she can even hear a newborn baby cry, and she goes, oh, it makes me yearn for another child. Now, I don't ever have that yearning. I don't know, I just... I, Maybe I'm not quite as spiritual as she is, but just maybe it's a mom thing. But again, this is, oh, it just makes me yearn for a baby. That's why, honey, work in the nursery once a month, please. You know, you're yearning out, and ours are 12, 14, almost 17. I, you know, but it's that same idea. It's the internal emotion that is so strong that you actually, you kind of feel it in your physical being. And that's what Paul's trying to indicate. That's our word picture here. When he says, I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ, he's saying, I care so much. My heart is so full of love and concern and affection towards you. I actually feel it deep within. Take notice as well there in verse 8 that this love that Paul had for them, notice its source. That love and affection Paul had towards them it stemmed from his relationship with Jesus. Because you see what he says there in verse 8? He says, the affection, take notice, of Jesus Christ. The idea is from Jesus Christ. The affection of Jesus Christ. The thing I want you to take note of is the source and origin of that tender love and care that Paul had for the Philippians. It really didn't come from Paul. It came from Jesus, if you understand what I'm saying. 
It was really the heart of Jesus who has such love and care for people way beyond we do. It, it wasn't necessarily Paul's human love for them. It was a supernatural love and care and concern that Paul began to experience in himself as a direct result of his relationship and his fellowship with Jesus Christ. It's as if Jesus had put the very love of his own heart into the heart of Paul. It's as if the stream of Paul's love and care for these people and his affection towards them, the stream of his love came from the source of the river of Jesus' love and care and compassion for people and for souls. And Paul's heart, as it became united with Jesus, therefore the heart of Jesus just kind of flowed into Paul. As a result of that, basically Paul experienced through his relationship with the Lord the heart of Jesus towards other people. It was through his fellowship with the Lord that the heart of Jesus began to come into his own heart and began to flood his own soul. And can I just say by way of application this morning, I think that that is a mark, one mark, a mark of spiritual maturity beginning to happen in our lives. One of the indications that spiritual maturity is starting to happen in our lives is when we start to have the heart of Jesus towards people. When we start to have the heart of Jesus towards our world, the heart of Jesus towards fellow Christians, the heart of Jesus towards our family and towards those around us, where we find ourselves valuing and viewing people as Jesus does, where we find ourselves, in essence, experiencing the care and concern for people that Jesus has. Let's be very candid and honest about ourselves. I will be at least about myself. By nature, my natural human heart by nature is pretty self-absorbed. And if left to itself, it will be completely self-absorbed. My natural inclination in my sinful humanity, quite honestly, I tend to be unloving, uncaring, unconcerned, self-absorbed with myself, you know, critical, impatient. That's my natural tendencies in my humanity. But yet, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful how as you spend time with Jesus and you just have fellowship with Jesus and ongoing relationship with him, how he can change our hearts over time. And it's almost like a, a supernatural transplant, a heart transplant where he takes away the heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh. And somehow by the miraculous work of God's grace and spirit, Jesus begins to give us his love for people and his care for people. And his concern towards others, he gives us his interest in wanting to reach people. He gives us his heart to say, hey, this person has train wrecked. But rather than say, well, you shouldn't have took that wrong turn to say, you know what? Is there some way I can step in and salvage this and, and, and bring together some? And, and that Jesus gives us that kind of heart. It doesn't come from us. But Jesus can give that to us where we can read the Gospels and we see the life of Christ manifested. And, and the amazing thing is then by the grace of God working in our lives as we just have relationship with the Lord, somehow we start to sense in gradual measures the same heart that we see the Lord had for people. We start to sense the same thing arising in ourselves. And it's a work of God's grace, changing our hearts, conforming us into the image of Jesus. Again, the Bible I read teaches me that it's Christ in you, Christ in me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, indicating that the very spirit of Jesus Christ, who is still alive, is now seeking to live out his life through our lives. And what a wonderful thing, even this morning, a wonderful prayer to ask the Lord today and continually, Jesus, would you give me your loving affection for people? Or Jesus, would you give me your loving affection towards believers in the body of Christ? Would you give me your love towards my husband? Would you give me your loving, tender affection towards my wife, towards my children? I think it's a wonderful thing that the Lord wants to do. And it's a measure and an indication when we're beginning to develop as we begin to have the heart of Jesus as Paul expresses that he had. So he expresses his great love for them. And then as he goes into verse 9 through 11, notice the next thing he does is he immediately indicates that he also prayed for them. In fact, in verse 9, you might want to underline these two words. Paul says, I pray. I love, I care. Interesting, he says, therefore, I pray. My love translates into prayer, he says. Because I care, I want to do the one thing for you that I know will have the greatest effect. I pray. And one of the ways his love was manifested, again, he's in a time of separation. 
Paul's chained to his circumstances. There's only so much he can do. He's separated from them physically. But rather than be, take note, rather than be depressed in his place of imprisonment, rather than woe is me and self-pity and and begin to find himself becoming self-focused and to, to just be utterly discouraged because of his own difficulty. What's Paul do? He redeems his time from right in the station where God has him sovereignly chained to. He can't change his circumstances. He redeems the time by doing what he could. And to me, as Paul does this, what's Paul doing? He's employing, listen, he's employing the most underrated and the most overlooked ministry, and that is praying for others. Praying for others by the devil's wonderful deception and our fleshly tendencies is the most underrated and overlooked ministry in our lives. And Paul the Apostle, when you look at his life, his care and concern here, take notice, it prompted him to want to cooperate with the good work that God was doing in their lives. He wanted to cooperate it. How? By asking, God, I just pray you would do this in their lives and work in their lives. And, and God, I pray that you'd help them stay spiritually healthy and sound. Lord, I, I pray that you would protect them from the devil. And I pray that you'd help them to abound and grow in their love and to be discerning and, and to mature and to be fruitful Christians. And, and Paul, when you look at his life as a whole, there's always a strong emphasis on prayer in this man's life. And I think that's because Paul began to understand as he grew in the Lord, listen, the value of praying for people. Paul began to understand in his Christian maturity the value of praying for people, the powerful results and the good fruit of asking for God to work in people's lives, for going to God and asking for God's involvement in somebody's life. Asking for God's intervention in someone's life. Saying, Lord, I, I can't do anything. Lord, my heart's concerned. I love them. And Lord, I can't change their heart. Or Lord, I can't help them make good decisions if I'm not always there with them. But Lord, you're always with them. And Lord, I just pray they'd be responsive to you. Or, Lord, I pray that you would awaken them to their need for you. Or Lord, I pray that you would protect them in, in my absence and help them to make good sound judgments. And what wonderful fruit and powerful results can come when we ask for God's involvement in the lives of people. That sinners' hearts would be gripped with the conviction of their sin and their need for God. And as we do things for the Lord and as we pray over a community or pray over an opportunity, that we ask, God, if you don't get involved, it's just going to be another spiritual entertaining activity. But Lord, we need you to get involved. We need you to prepare people's hearts. Lord, we need you to work in powerful ways and to ask for God's involvement and God's intervention. And Paul understood this. And I think the more we mature, I know in my own life, the longer I've walked with the Lord, the more I'm beginning, and I have a long way to go, the more as we mature, we grasp the value of prayer for people. And we realize the benefit of it. Listen, the Bible teaches the unseen spiritual war that is happening among people's souls. And war is comprised of many different battles and conflicts. And there's an unseen spiritual war that's going on all around us in people's lives in this world. And I've never been in the military. I have a tremendous respect for those who do serve and combat in such capacities. But just a general understanding, I understand prayer is kind of like long-range artillery. It's like long-range artillery. Listen, there's a time and a place for up-close hand-to-hand combat, for being in close you know, proximity and, and close combat or even face-to-face. There's a time for that. There's a purpose for that and a place for that. But there's also a purpose for long-range artillery because long-range artillery gives you the opportunity to kind of soften up the enemy lines before you get in a little closer for the activity of maybe closer combat. Long-range artillery has an ability to have an effect when we can't get close or personally involved in a particular situation. And prayer, in many ways, to me, it's like long-range artillery. As we pray and intercede for people, God softens up the enemy lines. He softens up the spiritual strongholds. He softens up the hearts of people to make them ready for then maybe speaking to them about Jesus. 
or confronting them about some sin or error in their life. If a believer is talking to a fellow Christian or to have the opportunity to, to teach and, and, and there's a place for both. We typically tend to gravitate towards the, we like the hand-to-hand combat stuff. We want to counsel somebody and give them a word and get in their face and share the gospel and, and there's a place for that. But prayer in many ways is like that long-range artillery to soften up the soil of people's hearts and to give the opportunity. And may God help us to mature in our understanding of the value of prayer for people. Its benefits, its results, its impact. James in chapter 5 tells us to pray for one another and he says, for the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Lord, help us by his grace to see the value of praying for people. Let's look in verses 9 through 11 here at what Paul prayed for these believers. Beginning in verse 9, he said, In this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. So Paul prayed that they would have, notice, an increase in love, that their love would abound more and more. But together with praying for an increase in love, he says, I'm also praying together that there would be coupled with that increase in love a balance of a proper understanding of what love involves our word love here that paul uses is our greek word agape which is that unconditional love that's not based upon feelings or experiences it's that unconditional love agape that has its source and origin in god god is love God alone is the source of this kind of love. It's not based upon anything other than choice. It's an unconditional love to decide and determine to love whether someone's worthy of it or despite the experiences that we're having with them. And it's a love that God has for us, for God so loved the world despite our sinful condition. And it's the love that God can give to us as we have a relationship with him. We can experience that love and then secondarily express that love towards other people galatians 5 tells us the fruit of the spirit is love it's agape that that love god has it can be manifested like fruit out of our lives to be expressed towards other and the evidence of god's spirit working in us many times is measured by that agape love it's measured by the mark of love that we have paul desired that this love would abound more and more the love they already had he says i just but there never can be enough love paul says If there's anything I've learned in all these years, Paul says, of of ministry, church planning, Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins. And the church, wonderful as it is, is still filled with its struggles and challenges and mistakes and failures. And and, and John the Apostle used to carry him around and he was so old they'd bring him in and, and he'd say, little children love one another. That's it? Yeah. Can you carry me off the stage now? Just love one another. And Paul says there could never be enough love. So he prays for an increase in the love that they have towards one another. And why? Well, let me give you two simple reasons. First of all, because love is a powerful testimony. Love is a powerful testimony. Jesus showed that. Remember in John chapter 13 where Jesus expressed the full measure, he says, of love towards them. He wanted to show them a greater extent of his love and he humbly through servanthood washed their feet. And then Jesus said these words in John 13. After he served them in love, he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Jesus said, if there'll be one way that the world will say, those people are connected to Jesus. He says, this is how they'll notice, by your love one for another. The people would look at this peculiar love that's there among Christians, the way they love and care and concern for one another, this authentic, devoted love that they have. And Jesus says, that's how people say, hey, those people, they're followers of that Jesus. By that love, that's not like anything in this world. Never seen anything like that. Which brings us to the second reason why love is so important to flourish because love also is a mark of spiritual maturity. It's not only a powerful testimony, it's a mark of spiritual maturity. Paul said to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 14, but above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection, the idea or maturity. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, remember who he said, I wish... I wish I could talk to you as mature, but you're still carnal. You're still acting like babes in Christ. And they were a talented fellowship. 
Spiritual gifts bursting at the seam, experiences, expressions of the Spirit. But Paul writes this letter to them, wanting them to mature. And in the midst of encouraging maturity among these gifted believers, Paul said to them, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith and could move mountains... But have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Paul says, look, no matter what we do and all we have and how great we're, we're seeking to manifest our gifts and talents, if we don't have at the root of it love, genuine love from God in our hearts for why we're doing what we're doing, or that that's not the motivating thing behind us, he says, we're missing everything. And Paul says, this is something that the believers there in Corinth, and sometimes many of us need to help develop in our lives that maturity is, is understanding the value of the supremacy of love. The supremacy of love. And I think a growing, maturing Christian should be a continually uh, increasing, more loving Christian. That is a mark of maturity in our lives because God is love. And Jesus demonstrated love. He was love personified and the fruit of the Spirit is love. And as we're developing as a child of God, that divine nature that's been deposited in us as a result of our conversion, that spiritual DNA of God who's loving should start to manifest itself more in my life. That like father, like son, I would begin to reflect my father more as that spiritual DNA is beginning to have more rulership control within me. And would you agree our world is starving for authentic love. It's starving for authentic love. And the Bible indicates that as Christians, you and I are the only source of that on this earth. We are the only source of authentic love. Distorted, perverted, crooked, crazy ideas of what love is, our world abounds with that. But authentic love, and authentic love is the kind of love that changes people's lives. It's the kind of love that transforms people to be loved unconditionally with pure love, to be loved in truth and to be cared for and, and to be... People don't know what to do with that. Our world is starving for that. And you and I have the opportunity to be the source of that. Notice in balance, Paul also tells us in verse 9, however, another part of maturity is also developing in our understanding of what love really is. And what love really involves. Look what he's saying there in verse 9. I pray that your love may abound more and more. He adds in by the Spirit's inspiration in knowledge and all discernment. Paul was asking that their love would be increasing in its knowledge and in its discernment. The word knowledge there is epinosis. It's that term in the Greek that speaks of a full understanding as the result of testing and experience. The word discernment speaks of a moral and ethical consideration of what is right and wrong. And Paul understood that true love, God's love, must include knowledge and discernment within it. See, it's knowledge, really, that governs and guides love properly, having a knowledge of what's right and wrong. That's what governs and guides love, to make sure that it's proper and it remains healthy. It's knowledge that reveals what love really is. And what love is not. It's knowledge, God's knowledge and God's standards in his word that help us to establish and honor healthy boundaries in relationships where we say that we love someone or we're expressing love. It's knowledge that governs and helps us have those boundaries to keep love healthy in its expression, proper in its expression, not distorted and twisted. It's discernment contained within love that is the thing that helps us when we say we love or we want to express love. It's discernment that helps us distinguish morally and ethically between what's right and what's wrong when we talk about love so loosely and we say we should express love so freely. And Paul here wisely understands that it is knowledge and discernment that helps us relate in truth at the same time that we receive and respond by loving among one another. That it's knowledge and discernment that helps us interpret properly and keep our bearings so that love is expressed in its healthy forms. Hear me this morning. True love is not just blind emotional sentimentalism. 
True love is not just emotions and feelings. Do emotions and feelings have their place? Yes, but they are not the sole ingredient of what true love is. True love is not just emotional feeling. When you look up the term sentimental, it means governed by feelings rather than reason and thought. And too often we misconstrue and have the mistaken idea somehow that love is strictly based on feelings. I feel a certain way. Oh, I feel love towards this person or I'm in love with them. I mean, yes, I'm married to this person, but, but I, I've fallen out of love. I feel in love with this person. Well, listen, there's no knowledge and discernment in that. There may be sentimental feeling, but there's no reason or judgment or discretion or discernment in that. And that's where trouble starts to happen, where we we reduce love to strictly sentimental, emotional feelings alone. Again, I look at Jesus in the Bible. Jesus was God in the flesh. He was love personified, the most caring, loving person. And when I look at the life of Jesus, he doesn't always seem sentimental. He loved tremendously. But when I see Jesus going through the, the courts of the temple, seeing God's people being taken advantage of and ripped off and, and deceived, and, and, and Jesus starts chasing people out with whips and, and pushing people and flipping over tables, I don't picture, he doesn't seem very sentimental there to me. That doesn't seem very sentimental, Jesus. As some of you are sensitive. But it was love. It was love. It was love that was regulated by truth. It was love that was governed by knowledge and discernment as well. And a mature understanding of love knows that love must retain a healthy measure of knowledge and discernment within it. Personally, I think that one of our biggest problems today in our world, and I'll go so far as to say, even I think one of the biggest problems plaguing the church is a love that is exclusive to feelings alone and disregarding knowledge and disregarding truth love must be regulated with truth what truth this this is the truth that that has to regulate love so that it's healthy love it's the right kind of love and it's love expressed in a healthy proper way with guidelines and boundaries and at times whereby even though we love someone we still respond in truth towards them and say well i you know i want to be loving well, sometimes being loving is also being caring and letting the truth of God be what governs the way that we respond and relate to one another in our lives. Well, notice Paul goes on next in verse 10 to also pray. It says he prayed for them that they might approve the things that are excellent. So Paul's asking there that God would help them consider and pursue what is excellent or what's best for their spiritual lives. That word approve is a term that means to test metals. It was a term in metallurgy where what they would do is test the metals to look for impurities. And the goal was to identify impurities and flaws in the metal that would weaken it or decrease its value. So you would distinguish the impurities with the goal of removing the impurities in order to be able to retain the strength and the health and the highest value of that metal. And, and Paul uses this as a picture here of, in a sense, what he prayed would happen in the lives of these believers that they would periodically take time to consider and distinguish and test the content of their lives. And that they on occasion would seek in maturity to distinguish not just what is good, but at times even to distinguish between what's good and what's excellent. Or what's good, maybe we'd say, and what's better. One translation renders this phrase, I want you to be able to recognize the highest and the best. The highest and the best. Again, if we think from the perspective of children and maturity, would you agree children are typically characterized by the inability to make good decisions? That's kind of the, one of the characteristics of children. They're not that great at making good decisions. And as they grow and mature, they develop, a part of maturity is learning how to make better choices, how to make good decisions in matters. And the same many times is true spiritually. Life is full of decisions, especially the Christian life. Some things are cut and dry. God's word's real clear. And some decisions are black and white. They're cut and dry. They're, they're very easy. But I find there are lots of other decisions in my spiritual life sometimes that are a little more challenging. They're not quite as cut and dry. Sometimes it's, it's trying to decide between the good choice and the best choice. Between what's just okay and what's excellent. 
being able to distinguish, hey, what is the high calling of God for me and saying, I want to go after that. I, I want to live in spiritual excellence. God wants us to live in spiritual excellence, to experience his best, the fullest of all the wonderful plans that he has for your life. And many times part of maturity is learning how to distinguish through prayer and God's word and counsel, how to distinguish the difference between, hey, yeah, this is good, but this is what's best. This is what's excellent. Paul, when he writes about Christian liberties in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 there and how we have certain liberties that we have the freedom to exercise in grace, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 10, 23, all things are lawful for me, which means I have freedom to do things, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. The idea is build up. So Paul says, look, I realize I, have the fr I do have the freedom to do certain things. But he says, just because I have the freedom to do something doesn't mean I always just indulge it. He says, I've learned in maturity that even though I may have the freedom to do something as a Christian, sometimes the things that I have the freedom to do, they don't, they don't really help me. In fact, they actually hinder my spiritual life. And there are things in your life that you may have the freedom to do as a Christian, but you have to ask on occasion, but does this help me in my Christian life? Does this help me grow closer to the Lord? Will this help me to walk in this, or may this potentially not help me and kind of be a distraction or hold me back? You have to look at things and I have to evaluate things and say, you know what, I have the freedom to do this, but is this really going to edify me spiritually? Is this really going to build me up spiritually? And just like the athlete that doesn't just want to compete, but wants to be a competitive, successful, high-level athlete, they do the same thing. They have freedoms of things they could do or eat or not do, but what do they do? Because they want to not just compete, but they want to achieve excellence, they use discretion in their life. And they say, you know, I have the freedom to eat a whole box of tasty cakes, but it's not going to help me when the competition comes around. So I'm going to choose to refrain from that because that won't help me. That will actually hinder me. In the same way for us in spiritual maturity, I think there's wisdom at times in our lives of taking an evaluation, approving, testing. Hey, is this going to bring me towards spiritual excellence? If it is, then maybe it's something that's okay. If it's not, then it's not a matter of being legalistic. It's just wise discretion saying, I love Jesus and I want to excel in the things of God more than I do want to indulge some freedom or opportunity that we may have. Look how Paul goes on the rest of verse 10. He also prayed that they might be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. So Paul also prayed for these believers that they'd possess an inner conviction, an inner conviction regarding being genuine or sincere, he says, in their walk with Jesus. Again, he uses verse 10, that time span that he used up in verse 6 of until the day of Jesus Christ. Just a reference, until the day of the return of Christ, he's trying to say. Paul is communicating, saying from now all the way out until the day that Jesus returns, I pray that you would continue to be, and first thing he says, that you may be sincere. Sincere. And that's a compound word originally, which in its origin, from Latin, meant to be without wax. And it came from a practice that happened among the ancient culture among potters and those who constructed vessels, whether it was forming a statue or fashioning a vessel as they would work on their pottery. Sometimes they would make mistakes and the pottery would get cracked or you'd chip off the nose of the statue after you've been working on that thing for days and, oh no, what do I do? Well, what they did many a times when it would get a crack and that would, of course, decrease its value, they would mix together the clay dust with wax and they'd... <laughs> stick the nose back on or they'd fill in the crack with the, the wax and clay dust and then they would just glaze and paint over it and try and hide it. The problem was somebody then would come and buy this thing through this deceptive technique to try and hide what its true condition really was and they would buy it, they'd bring it home, ancient culture, no uh, central air, they'd put it in their window, the hot mid-eastern sun would beat down on it and all of a sudden, guess what, that wax would start to melt and the flaws and the problems with the piece would be exposed. So many times, potters, when they put their stuff in the marketplace, all vessels sincere, the idea is without wax. Everything here is authentic. Everything here is genuine. We don't want somebody to come back and say, hey, this isn't sincere. That's the root idea of this word, sincere. It means to be genuine, to be authentic. 
not to portray an image before others that hides who you really are. Not to in any way try and live a double life and cover up moral flaws, keep a good image to deceive others for your own benefit. And as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, to be sincere means that we are to be real and genuine in our relationship with God before others and especially before God himself. That we're not playing some part that we're not somehow trying to portray ourselves like we're some spiritual superhero, just trying to impress everybody else because we're not as spiritual as what we wish we were or others. Listen, people don't need that anyway. It's okay for people to know that we struggle and, and that we're not perfect. We're just forgiven sinners by the grace of God. People can relate to that. We don't need to have some spiritual superhero cape. We're just trying to impress people that we're somewhere in our walk with God that we're not or we're actually more polished. Be careful of that. That's not sincere. God said, no, don't be a phony. Don't, don't do that kind of stuff. Just be sincere. Walk in the light. Just be, who, be real, genuine, who you are. And most certainly, let us never be guilty of willfully trying to cover up moral impropriety in our life whereby before the body of Christ throughout in the world we're claiming the name of Christ and we're putting on this image of who we are spiritually in love with Jesus and we know at the convenient times and the right times how to say the right things and act the right ways for our own little benefit and yet that in our private life or elsewhere we are living just as carnal or worse than unconverted souls. God help us not to do that. Paul says, I pray that you would be sincere. News flash this morning. God and non-Christian people despise spiritual hypocrisy. So let us guard our hearts against those things. Paul says, I pray that you just be sincere. He also says, I pray that you'd be without offense. And the idea there, a stumbling block, the indication is that we would avoid doing things that are morally wrong or hurtful to people so that we're not stumbling and offending people in our lives that we would care enough to to not be guilty of treating people in ways that hurt them or cause stumbling or offense and then tragically sometimes you know being offensive and stumbling people and then just disregarding and acting like well whatever they'll get over it i'm going on he said paul said oh i pray that that wouldn't happen to you i pray that you wouldn't begin to have a heart where you forget that god loves people and therefore if god loves people why would i want to hurt people why would i want to stumble and offend people and just act like on top of that, I have no regard for doing such. Listen, we're going to stumble one another. We're going to offend. We're going to make mistakes. But when we do, above all else, if and when we do, we've got to repent. And we've got to be willing to resolve those things and ask for you know, apologize and ask for forgiveness and reconcile things. Again, if we think of small children, what are small children characterized by? Small children are characterized by not being very considerate of others. Have you ever noticed that? When they're young and they're immature, they're not real considerate of other people. And they also usually don't like saying sorry. Say you're sorry. I'm sorry. That's immaturity. Maturity is when we start to understand, I need to be considerate of, there's other people on the planet besides me. And the world can't revolve around me. And so I need to be considerate of other people. As Paul's going to say, chapter 2, look not only to your own interests, but the interests of others. Consider others better than yourself. And spiritual maturity is those same marks in our life where we become considerate of others, caring towards others, and even when we do in some way in our weakness and our inconsideration hurt or harm or cause offense, that we care enough to say, you know, I need to go apologize. I need to reconcile that. I can't just leave this undone and brush it under the carpet and just try and forget about it, why this person is still bleeding for years on end. He says, no, I pray that, that you'd be sincere, honest, and that you'd not offend, that you'd have a heart of love instead that wants to edify and to build up. And lastly, he says in verse 11, I pray that you would be filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the praise, excuse me, to the glory and the praise of God. So the last thing Paul expressed that he was praying for these believers, notice, is that they would have a desire within for God to be glorified and that God would be glorified in such a way that people would be drawn to him. Paul says here, I'm asking that you'd be filled and occupied with, he says, the fruits of righteousness. The fruits of righteousness. That is that byproduct that is produced by living a righteous life. 
It's all the fruits of righteousness, all the good, wonderful things that come as the result of any man, woman, boy, or girl just living in right relationship with Jesus Christ. The good fruits that come out of that. And good fruit or fruit period typically isn't produced for the tree itself. Trees don't produce fruit for themselves. Trees produce fruit for others to partake of it and to enjoy it. Same with the good fruit that comes from our lives. Notice who produces as well, verse 11, that genuine spiritual fruit. Who produces it? Paul says, it's not by us, it's by Jesus. Genuine spiritual fruit is not something we can manufacture. That is the most discouraging, depressing effort ever. Uh, there's nothing good in me. Paul says, I know that in me, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Nothing. But good fruit can come by Jesus Christ. Again, this is the whole John 15 thing. It's the abiding thing where Jesus says, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you disconnect from me, Jesus says. Stop reading the Bible. Stop praying. Stop walking with me and abiding and remaining in close relationship with me. And Jesus says, watch how very quickly all the good fruit in your life, it'll start to dry up. But he says, if you just stay connected to me, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to know every verse of the Bible. But if you just stay close to me, Jesus said, just stay close to me. Love me, walk with me. And he says, the fruit of my spirit will begin to just be manifested in your life as the sap of the spirit of God flows through our weak branches. And that good fruit comes into our lives. And notice Paul also says in verse 11, it is fruit which is by Jesus Christ. Verse 11, he says, to the glory and praise of God. So according to what the Holy Spirit shows us here, what's the purpose of spiritual fruit? That God would be glorified. That God would be praised. That any good work or good fruit that happens in my life or your life, it's so that people's attention would be drawn to God. It's so that people would want to praise God and look to God. Not that people would want to admire me. Not that people necessarily would want to be impressed with you. Jesus said it this way. Let your light so shine before men. So shine. There's a way to do it. Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. That's the purpose of any good fruit that God is bearing in our lives. Not that a person would be admired or adored or a personality would become impressive to people but that the person of God would be what people are drawn to to say, man, praise God for what he's doing in your life. Praise the Lord for the work that's happening and that people's attention, praise and glory would be given to God. I'll tell you, the Lord help me and help you that when a good work happens through our lives, if it results in the exaltation of a personality, I tell you, that fruit is slowly rotting. It is slowly rotting. Lord, help me and help us to experience the good fruit and the good work of God in our lives in such a way that more people would want to glorify God, that more people would be excited about Jesus. We sang this morning, may Christ be the center of our lives. May he be the glory of the church. That's the heart of the Lord. And I think that's where maturity starts to be happening when we're zealous for the glory of God, when we're zealous for the exaltation of Jesus. Amen?